If you already know about Peter Case and his songwriting and career, you'll already be wanting to hear this. If you're late to this party, it's hard to know where to start. Peter keeps getting better and better. Come on! How does he do it? That's what I wanted to know. This is in Santa Monica, the day after he had played McCabe's in April of 2019. First the laughter, then the line up there, all gone and locked up tight where the cold wind blows. But we'll all meet again at the end of the long good time. Yeah, we'll all meet again at the end of the long good time. We're rolling. All right, what are we up to? Well, I have a, a lot to ask you. Uh, I'm not going to go through the n normal stuff. We can get round to it where okay, I say, what, how old were you when you wanted to move out of Buffalo and all that stuff? Yeah, we don't need to do that. Yeah, we don't need to do that. We can find all that on Wikipedia. Okay, good. So, having been the kind of artist that you were in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s where you, were, you had record deals and you were in these bands. At what point did you have the epiphany, I got to play solo? Um, let's see. I was playing solo when I, in, the start, in the 70s. And then I also sort of had a band that played on the street. Then I joined a real band that was like going to go out and play, and we went on the road, and that was, I did five years in that band, five years in the Plimsolls, so it was like in 10 years, like really working in bands. Was that the Nerves? The Nerves and the Plimsolls. Yeah. The Nerves was like 74 to 79, the Plimsolls was like 79 to the first day, we were the first day of 79 to the first day of 85, and we packed it up. And then in 84, in late 83, um, I decided that I was gonna, um, that I was writing these new kind of songs and I was gonna follow that um, wherever it took me. And they just started to really come to me. And um, some of them happened after the tour we went on in 83. And then some of them, uh, I played McCabe's early January 84. Joe Nolte and I played over there. We did a show together that Harvey Kubernick just called out of the blue and set up. But he was right on it. He had an intuition about something. And, and I picked up on it and really wanted to do it. And so I did that show in January. And then with every intention to like completely go solo because the Plimsolls were foundering, really. And I came back from a, a road trip all around the country that I went on. And the Plimsolls wanted to keep going. So I, I got... The idea that I would just do this new kind of music with the Plimsolls and do it in the Plimsolls, but it wasn't it wasn't really doable. Uh, and I felt, for various musical reasons, I think, and personal reasons too, but you know, kind of musical direction type 
problems. And then I felt like I really had to commit one way or the other. Like these days, people, and before that too, really, people would uh, have different aspects of what they did. For example, Neil Young would play, make Harvest, and then he would make a Crazy Horse record or something. Or other people, you know, Bob Dylan went electric. I guess that really fried everybody's mind. But then he did John Wesley Harding or something. But there's other people that too, that that did that spanned both those things. And I always thought that I would be able to, as a kid, just do everything. But in '84, you couldn't. It felt like you couldn't. I had to make a decision, and really to go solo and to do it for real, you felt like you really to have the credibility to put the songs across and all that. You couldn't just seem like you were a you could, but I didn't want to. It seemed like I was a tourist in that area. I, I decided I had roots in that area that you know that I really wanted to get to, that I'd been been through before. You know, I really grew up on that kind of music. You know, really, the when I played those rock and roll bands, that was a bigger aberration in my life, in my music than than uh, any of the than the switch to playing solo, because it's a different kind of songs that we were doing in the Nerves and the Plimsolls, and they're real minimal. And the words are sort of like really, in a way, they're like just like these things, you know, they're like uh, musical objects or something. Like that's what we were doing in the nerves. And the words were like important, but they were minimal, you know, maybe even more minimal than the Ramones were or something. They were really minimal in the nerves. And um, so to get into doing that kind of music, I learned a lot doing it. And I learned a lot about music and I learned about being in bands. And then I decided I wanted to have the plimsolls, which was going to pick up where the nerves left off and just blast off and be able to do a much more aggressive and successful live show than the nerves did. Because the nerves could really write songs and play and sing, but we didn't have the great live shows. I mean, some people liked them, but in my opinion, like we were, that was our weak link. And so the Plimsolls, I wanted that to be our stronger link. And so we uh, did that. And so I was trying to combine the songs of a band like The Nerves with, uh, you know, the aggression of a, of a real rock and roll band or whatever. Aggression is probably not the right word, but presence, rock and roll projection. Mm-hmm. And uh, Power. Yeah, power, but also just projection and like an intensity and a commitment and, the, mm-hmm. uh, you know. I used to go out to these clubs in Buffalo when I was a kid, and like these bands would come out. And it was almost kind of a macho thing, you know. These bands would come out, and you know, Spoon and the House Rockers, you know, on Elmwood Avenue in Buffalo, and Spoon would like get off his shift at the Ford plant, and he was a you know a blues singer, and um, you know it was like you know, you know, a black and it was an integrated band, you know, with African Americans and Italian Americans, and uh, <coughs> weird combination that you get in Buffalo, and. Uh, was very powerful in the clubs and I learned a lot from just being in the room with that. And that's a lot what the Plimsolls were about. It was like that feeling that I used to get from that from those kind of bands. It got in my body when I watched those bands. Like you know I just really it would go out and like, you know, just try to send it, you know. And uh So that was an cool. aberration. It was, you know, because it was hard for me to write songs for the Plimsolls and for the nerves. Like I it, I don't know, it wasn't hard but it was like I would write a lot of other things and then throw, have to throw them away because the styles of the bands wouldn't incorporate it really. And especially in the nerves, like where you had to get the songs past the leader of the band, which was Jack. And uh, I was sort of low man on the totem pole. I mean, me and Paul were both always trying to contend with Jack. 
and he was always trying to call the shots, and we were always trying to sort of undermine him. And like if the Plimsolls, I mean, if the nerves all would have been on the same side, you know, we probably could have really ruled the roost, you know, writing songs for, he had was writing songs for Blondie, and I could have right. gone on. and hanging on the telephone. Yeah, oh. man, and we could have done a lot of different things. Yeah. But, and really been in a great position when the whole, you know, new wave punk thing hit, but instead we were always kind of um, having to contend with each other. So I had to learn... So when I, when I got out of that kind of limiting environment, like the songs just started to really flow. And so when I was writing for the, my first solo record, and from then on, really, uh, it was much more... Was that the Geffen record? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it got a lot more... It was like I, I became prolific, really, in a way that was very hard to do in the plimsolls. For some reason, like it was... You know, that's my one regret about the plimsolls, really, and the nerves as well, is that we didn't record more and write more and do more. But and it was... You know, I had a real high standards for what I thought songs should be in a band like the Nerves or the Plimsolls. And uh, that was the whole gimmick, really, because we weren't really that outrageous that, you know, you were going to, like, talk about us because we were outrageous or had done anything weird or, like, you know, it had to be the cut songs. ourselves on stage. Yeah. or we just, It wasn't our bag. So I wanted the song, like, the the whole thing with the Plimsolls, like, one song after another. They're all going to, like, just be you know, really powerful and, you know, great songs that just really made you, you know, feel the, feel the heat, you know, or whatever, feel mm-hmm. the feelings, you know. And so, uh, and so we did that, but it was very, I, I, I was very self-critical, you know, and I don't know, when I stopped having to write for the Plimsolls, I was, when I started writing the songs that had stories and words and, and it just started to really roll and it was more fun for me and it, it felt a lot better to me. And I know a lot of people think it was really fun to have the plimsolls and all that. And it's a lot of people's high school music and stuff. But for me, like, it really got fun when I left. I mean, I love the plimsolls, but, like, my life took off in another way. It helped. It enabled me to put together a lot of things that I loved to get away from that kind of strict environment of the uh, four-piece four rock and roll band. And, and I, I, you know, I... I just always had these things. My first songs that I wrote back in Buffalo, they were so more similar to the to the songs of my solo career than they are to the Plimsolls. Mm-hmm. I'd never really written those kind of songs before, like right around '73, mm-hmm. rock band songs. Not really, you know. I did. I had songs with to put across a point of view a lot more, yeah. and that, so that's sort of what it's about. And, and so maybe I'm someone who's been, at, you know, it's. You know, I was at war with myself a bit, you know. Mm-hmm. And good things can come out of that, I suppose. But then finally it had to be resolved. And even as life went on into the 90s, like you asked about, and I still had the plimsolls going, you know, it still hadn't been completely resolved, you know. Now it's more resolved. But now it's like so late in the game that it doesn't matter almost that it's resolved. But, you know, I mean, I just like need it to be resolved because I have a lot of work I want to do. But but that's the story about that. You know, so it was really fun playing in the bands. You got the camaraderie and the fans. And like the life back then was like so amazing. Clubs would be filled with people. And we'd go on the road and people would be going crazy. And there's like hijinks and adventures. And, you know, a lot of stuff that happens for a lot of, of us when we were young, you know. And when I went solo, it was a long, you know, it sounds stupid, but it was like when I went solo, that was a long, dusty road, man. It, it, you know, I, yeah. I, when I left that world and left the support of all those fans, because I took about half the Plimsolls fans with me, maybe less, and had to build up my own fan base 
as a solo person. And it was a different thing because it's, it requires a different type of listening and a different type of audience, really. That, you know, it's not that, just that visceral, you know, drunken, you know, plimsolls thing, which I love. And I'm not putting it down, but it's not. What I do, you know, it is visceral. I'm a very visceral f- folk singer, if you want to call it that. You know, a stomping uh, acoustic player or, you know, I always liked, like, I saw a lot of people play when I was a kid that were solo and were great. And so that's part of what it had. It didn't take a big leap of the imagination for me to think about people playing solo. And I mean, really solo. Like, I went and saw Light and Hopkins play, and then I saw Arlo. I saw Simon and Garfunkel when they just had one guitar in 67. I saw James Taylor and John Hammond Jr. I saw Dave Van Rock play. I saw Pete Seeger. I saw folk singers you've never heard of. Like, I saw this guy called Cedric Smith who was up in uh, Canada. He's a pretty well-known guy in Canada as an actor. He's a Shakespearean and, like, you know, he's on TV actor and stuff. But he was a great folk singer. And I saw him play at a little place up there in uh, the late 60s. And and then I used to play at these coffee houses, and I would see people in the coffee houses, too, that were great. And, and then I would buy records by people like Eric Anderson and Tim Buckley and all this kind of thing. And so, not that Tim Buckley played solo that much. He usually had a pretty good band. But... Fred Neal and people like that and I just really looked and then all the blues singers and it took a while to hear all those blues singers but because you couldn't even get that many records back in the day but you know John Hurt but then Memphis Slim you know all these different records and it totally seemed like a complete thing to me you know and so I know that I work in an area that's pretty untried at this point there's not that many people that do what I do not really you know, there's a few, just a few, really, that continually go out solo and continue mm-hmm. to play solo and bring a, you know, uh, I, you know, I think, like I always play, like I play smaller places, you know, but we pack them. I've been selling them out and it's been going great, you know, and like I, if I had a band, I'd have to have like a four or five times bigger place just to even get where I'm at, playing these solo shows. Right. So you can afford to pay the bands. No, I can't. Oh. I, I would have to play a four times bigger place to, to, to be able to get do as well as I'm doing. Right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. When you have to play, you know, when you're playing those bands. And so, like, a lot of the bands, you know, they die on the vine, you know. Every time I go out with a band, you know, I end up um, going in debt. And so, even if the clubs are full, you know, a lot of times. I went out in 89 when I had that blue guitar band with Duke McVinney and Mike Bannister. And Fast Freddy was the road manager. We went all around the country. And. I had to go immediately go back on the road to pay the um, van bill and a couple other crazy bills. And, and you know, we had a lot of people at those shows in 89. And then I took another band out and uh, I've done it like maybe two or three other times. But I, I don't, I'm not interested in it really. I got some bands parked out there. Mm-hmm. And so I've got a band in um, Buffalo mm-hmm. of guys I grew up with. And I got this band here, you know, the people I play with. And then Atlanta, I have there's a band down there I work with sometimes. And... I want to some people in Texas if I wanted to do that. But I don't do it that often because of the, I also feel like it's more unique what I can do solo than and more, you know, more uh, more un- unique and original what I can do solo than what I do with a band because unless you have a lot of time to break in a band, like we do with the Plimsolls, we just stood around in these rehearsal rooms and like worked and worked and worked to get the sound going that like really just didn't, you know, it was our way of playing rock and roll. And it took, you know, we didn't just like, 
it wasn't just like five guys that got together, you know, to play Tuesday night, you know. And right. So we really worked it out. But if you don't do that, it just starts to sound generic. And like I've done, I'm I'm so far beyond that as a solo player. I've worked. I have a sound and approach and a touch and a thing. I know I do, mm-hmm. and that's what I bring to it. And and it's a hundred percent. You know, uh, it's, you know, it's an authentic feeling. You know, an authentic uh, approach to music that doesn't really. Uh, you know, it's just always just. It, it is what it is. It, it is a. a unique sound whatever you think of it and if i just load up some guys and stuff you know it starts to it starts to water it down unless they're really plugged into me like the guys in buffalo they're pretty plugged into me because we've been playing together you know since we were like in seventh grade so we can just talk about songs play you know we named some song we did at a dance in seventh grade and you know but so that's fun but they can't leave buffalo they're all got to work and stuff they're like professional i mean they're real musicians but they uh they all, you know, one guy's a full-time musician, but one guy teaches high school art, and the other guy's like a process server or something. Yeah. Right, it's hard to make a living just being a musician. It is. Yeah, it's really Buffalo, hard, man. Probably especially. Yeah, well, you did You did a live record. You had musicians on it, and also Highway 62. You I did a live some, record? Yeah, you did a live record oh, that, after. It was a radio station. Oh, that's right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, you had some friends come. So it wasn't just. And those song. people had been on the record. Yeah. That was the band. Most of the people on that, um, just about everybody on that thing had been on the record. And yeah. so so we went down and did it, you know. This was at a radio station? It was at, at the Folk Scene Radio Show mm-hmm. with uh, Howard and Ros Larman, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was the record on the way downtown, they called it. And that was like kind of like a gift to me because. Um, I needed to have a record, and I didn't have. I didn't know what I was going to do, and then all of a sudden, this record showed up, and the rec- Omnivore bought it from them for a certain amount of money, and told me that they were putting it out. You know, so yeah. I see it's an Omnivore record. Got mm-hmm. it. You know, you talk about playing solo. The whole other thing that's changed. I know it's late in the game. Of course, it's late in the game. Um, it feels like the music business kind of had its arc and then you know those of us that are that still care to be musicians are just going ahead anyway in spite of the way things have changed but one of the major things is you've got to market yourself all the time you've got to get people to those gigs you can't just say you're going to play you got to be doing social media and 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 how do you incorporate that aspect which has nothing to do with those blues singers you know that you saw nothing originally. to do with what it's nothing to do with those blues singers you originally saw you know well it they had other problems you know i mean everybody's got their problems you know and like you know like if you study those blues singers like you know they were like uh you know it wasn't just a free wide open highway for them they had to like get an apartment with a view on the street so they didn't get picked up for vagrancy and get forced into a chain gang and have to go out and pick cotton or, uh, you know yeah. what I mean? Or, like, they would, you know, get in dice games, you know, and all sorts of other things. I mean, you study, like, uh, Honey Boy Edwards' book uh, and these people. I'm like, you know, they're, you know so, like, to, for them to make it, you know, make, you know, you got to hustle to survive. And so, uh, in one way or the other, you know, it's going to get you, you know. And so, uh, um, yeah, you know. Uh, That's fair enough. You're saying it's just a different flavor of hustle basically you just gotta you always gotta like you know when you, like if it's not one thing it's another like everything these days everything's a hustle you know and so you can't just every single thing you know so uh um if you want to stay in it you know like i know robin hitchcock and we talked about it and different people you know 
you know, it's your day job as a, as a musician. You got to take care of the hustle. And so that's just the way it is. And when it was in the Plimsolls, you know, it was, uh, I mean, you know, I don't spend, you know, eight hours a day doing it. I'd spend eight hours more time doing music, but I definitely, and then I goof off and I feel like, you know, I goof off for endless amounts of time. And then, uh, feel like oh god i gotta get something done i'm more like one of those french guys they say in france like the people only work like you know 10 hours a week but they really get a lot done and like the few hours they work or they just work a few you ever seen that rap and i'm kind of more like that you know because i i spend a lot of time working on music and reading stuff about it and writing and playing piano and i play i play piano at a church and i do a lot of different things that like are musical and uh and then when I and then I you know begin to feel guilty that I'm not hustling hard enough, and sometimes I go on the road and you know if I haven't done it that much. But I also have a guy that manages me and he does some of it, but he doesn't like to do it that much either. And he's got he's managing a few people, so you you know nobody wants to do it. But you know you know it could be fun too. And I got friends out there. You know it's a network really. One of the things that happens is that um, at this point you know you create your network of people out there and you can reach out to them and. There's a, there is a lot of help, you know. There's a, you know, it's not like pushing a rope. You get a lot of pull out there, you know, mm-hmm. and so that's good because pushing a rope's hard. The '90s was like pushing a rope, you know. The '90s was the hard period for me, you know. That was mm-hmm. the early '90s was brutal, man, and uh, that was before I learned how to do any sort of social media or any the internet. And it was after the biz- music business had uh, dropped, you know, dropped my hot potato, and so I was, uh, you know, caught between two two scenes you know mm-hmm. and it was very difficult you know and you'd be out there on the road and like i don't know big head todd or you know open up for some band like that or something and you know, just a lot of a lot of brutal interfaces with audiences that didn't know what was going on the late 80s was a little like that though you know i had i was still on the major label at that point you know you forget when when you're on those labels you know as you well know you know you get that you get that feeling of wind in your sails that that even on a failure you're you know, you're doing, you're doing a lot. You know, there's a certain amount of momentum that happens on those things. It just doesn't not anywhere anymore. And so, uh, how do you feel like if somebody came along a major record company? Would you even trust them? Or I'm not even really there? interested. It doesn't. You yeah. know, it would have to really be a sweet thing, man. Because uh, um, it would just. You know, I, I've had a couple run-ins with different things like that, and it would have to be a real sweet thing because I. I uh, you know, I don't. You know, I don't need a disruption of the clubs I play or the things. You know, the records. You know, we could do better with the records, and so I, I am looking around. But in terms of the, you know, the way, yeah, we'll take you on, but you got to take a band out touring or something like that. You know, I'm not really interested. You know, right. One thing that's um, like I'm not interested in really getting on the gravy train at this point. I'm already on. You know, the the case train for like you know we're just on our way. You know, doing our thing. So I, you know, it's about, you know, my heroes when I was a kid were poets and blues singers. And, you know, to be in that league of people didn't doesn't take you to clear any bar. And you don't have to, uh, in my opinion, uh, you, know, sell, you know, hit any chart or sell any certain number of records or, be, you know, have a certain label or anything. Mm-hmm. All you got to do is that's what you are. You know, you're going to do this thing and now you're one of the... You know, you're one of the gang, you know, you're one of the people. And like, you know, uh, you know, everybody wants to figure out what their place on the totem pole is or something. But really, my heroes were blues singers and poets, and a lot of them were unknown. And a lot of them lived their whole life uh, making beautiful things happen um, in relatively uh, austere conditions. And so, 
you know, that's my compass point, and that keeps me sane. Yeah. In the face of it all, you know, I just read this really interesting thing. There's this book here by this guy, uh, Bill Berkson, about Bill Berkson, mm-hmm. and uh, they had, he's a poet, you know, and he worked at Black um, uh, Black Mountain College. He was one of the guys, that, the main guy that set that up. And he's a painter and stuff. And, Bill Berkson, they asked, well, like, what about the economy of the poetry world? And he goes, well, it's not, an, it's not, you know, it's an economy of energy. It's not an economy. It's not a financial economy, really, being a poet. Like, the thing I'm doing is not that austere. You know, it's not that as difficult as being a poet or something. But but there's an economy of energy and an economy of uh, enthusiasm or an economy of uh, spiritual economy. And... That's really what what you're working in, you, because the, the other thing is uh, uh, is elusive and and uh, demanding and basically unreachable. So I mean, it's not even you know, it's just a waste of time. And then once you get there, where are you, you know? And so you know, like I always knew uh, or I knew started to know it at some point. You know, there's people on the street that are helping each other out, and like you know. You know, uh, and there's people in Beverly Hills in a closet alone with a gun on their mouth. You know, and so once you know that, once you really know that, you know, there's people uh, getting high on the street by helping each other out. You know, by offering each other a helping hand and surviving together. And then people, you know, isolated with vast material wealth. You know, and just lost as the day is long. So once you know that, nothing matters anymore. Yes. It doesn't matter. You know, you don't, you, nothing bad could happen, you know? It's like, if you lost everything, you could get, you know, you'd get, you'd get a, you could still get enough to, you know, make something beautiful happen. And so if you're in this, in this world of, uh, you know, I play small clubs, you know, I, McCabe's, you know, in these places, I got to that level at McCabe's and it's kind of, um, you know, I sold out McCabe's and I sold out the Folk Music Center and I sold out the back room in Berkeley and I sold out, we were, I did a sold out show at, uh, mountain stage and there was a sold out show in cleveland at some place you know that's cool but those are not big places you know it's not like i'm selling out the forum and then i sold out the agora and then i sold out the you know the berkeley community theater or something you know these are like you know folk scenes you know folk mm-hmm. clubs you know and i saw and i do sell those out which means that there is you know enthusiastic interest in what i'm doing there's a, a give and take with me with an audience but it's not uh you know i got kind of got reached that point and then I, you know, there was it was no longer really upwardly mobile, mm-hmm. except in the most kind of far out way. Like, so you, you, know. you feel songs are really, really a spiritual thing that keeps you going. Yeah, man, and you know, as you get on in life, I mean, certain things get easier. Uh, you know, I guess they could get harder too, but. You know, certain things fall together, and you know a lot of people, and you know. What about the schlep, the guitars, the stomp box, getting piano? I don't a piano. have a stomp box. You know, no stomp box. No, I have a guitar tuner. I guess that's the closest I have to. It. I have a little bag. That's it. That goes on the road, and these two guitars go on the road, and then a suitcase. That's it. and they all. So it's everything just guitars goes in, huh? and whatever pianos in the venue. Piano at the venue, yeah. Yeah. And if they don't have a piano, I don't use one. Did I wouldn't you, mind having a piano, but I don't have one. Did you play one at McCabe's? Did you no. play theirs? Yeah. You ever play it? 
I've not played that one. They they usually recommend not playing that one. That one? The one they have shoved off to the side of the That's stage. That's a great piano. Everybody plays that piano. They okay. tell you not to play it? You should always well, I've play been it. To, I've, I've been told not to play it at times. Well, definitely play it. It looks way cooler than Brina. Don't bring. Don't ever bring anything to McCabe's like that. you got a great piano there. I play the pianos all across the country. You know, there's a lot of terrible pianos, but they're all good in their own way. You know, you learn different things on different pianos, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, listen to like Monk on, you know, Blue Note or something, you know. like, You know, if you got perfect pitch, you know, watch out because some of those pianos that they gave him aren't the greatest. But, you know, it's in the, like we say, it's in the fingers, you know. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, they talk to you pianos, I think, you know, where they've been. Yeah, man. They come through. Mm-hmm. And of course, every once in a while you play one that's just like superb. They have one at the back room in Berkeley. It's like one of the best pianos in the country. It's like a Steinway in this like little bitty club, and the guy brought his he had a Steinway, and so he brought in the Stein. It's like it's a bright Steinway. And it's really nice. It's great, you know. And uh, it's a great one. Every once in a while, it's like crap. But usually, like the worst stuff you play is like something like, like they have some sort of digital piano. So you, you know? go through the board, or do you use an amp? What? You're playing acoustic. You're doing. I go you, through the board. You go through the board. So, yeah, you're traveling pretty light. That's great. Oh, yeah. I used to put a Diarmin in that thing and take an amp. I got sick of that. Uh, I got tired of putting a Diarmin in the sound hall. I like the Diarmin, but it sounds good to a tremolo, you know. When I record, sometimes I put it in there and I run two signals, like one off the mic and one through an amp from another room. But, yeah, I just play those things. Yeah, I play travel pretty darn light. That's right. I'm only taking one guitar to England. I'm taking that thing. And this guy's going to loan me a... Uh, Jackson Brown model Gibson. So, you know, I don't have to take a guitar. So that's cool because it's hard to fly over there with all that junk. Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, it's about the songs. It's about the songs and the singing, and, uh, you know, it's about the performance, and it's about, you know, ambition could get out of hand if you just have ambition for yourself. But if you have ambition for your, for your songs and for your audience and for your performance, that's okay. You know, they taught me that's what I learned. You know, it's, it's okay to have ambition for the songs. And then there's like a whole thing you got to do to really put songs across live. You can't, you can't just, you know, they somehow have to come alive in, in a gig. So you got to like let them have their own kind of breathing area. You know, they got to have their own kind of way to warm up and stuff. You know, like you got you got great songs like you know like that's those things are hard in Louisiana. You know, but you were coming up with like some real hooky songs. You know, and then like you know one of the tricks at, at that thing seems to me to like. Uh, Extend your songs maybe on the front. Extend them on the front? Yeah, like groove them, you know, so that like, you know, you pull people in or find a way to, you know, that's always the challenge, you know, in a live thing or especially when you're playing for strangers is to pull people in, you know, to get them onto your wavelength if they don't really know what you're about or even especially sometimes if they do know what you're about. You know, you have to surprise people and you have to come in under their defenses or over their defenses. I, li- I like that. I like that. Yeah, you gotta throw them a curve. You know, it's like baseball. You gotta throw them a, you know, backdoor slider, you know, or something. You know, you gotta, you gotta have a, you know, you gotta have a change up or something, you know, to. Um, something simple to hang on to. Yeah, and like you know, the two things like singer songwriters usually neglect are singing. Uh, they don't, you know, don't pay much attention to singing, and then they neglect groove. But if you see John Prine, you know, he's got like just like a killer, you know, like even like even when he used to play those solo shows, you know, I just went and saw him play solo at the, with that theater over on Highland or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. He came through with Nancy Griffith, like in the 84, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And me and Bob Forrest went down to it. And 
he was just killer, you know. And it, he just played guitar alone, and he just usually doesn't even finger pick it, but just kind of like strums it. And it was just such a powerful groove. Like music's got to have a groove. Like there was this one period where singers would come to guys would write songs. Usually, guy was guys, and it was in the '90s, and they would here's my songs, and they'd give you an album, and there wouldn't be any rhythm on the record. It'd just be these really dour, you know, ruminations on really heartbreaking co- topics, but without any groove, man. Like that's the whole point of blues. Like blues doesn't make you sad. Blues is music that's supposed to lift you up. You know, it has a Blues isn't like people, oh, blues is depressing. Well, blues isn't depressing at all. That's the whole point of blues music, you know, is that it it uh, has an energy and a power that, like, it may feel bad. You know, you may be talking about feeling bad, but, you know, you, it feels so good to feel that, to talk about feeling bad like that, that it's not even a problem. And so, or it is a problem, but, you know, it's part of survival. And that's the same with all this kind of music. Now, blues is gone now. There's no way to play blues anymore, but... But we're all playing our own kind of blues, and you've got to have... But I know you know that, because I've heard you play. Like, you you create these almost... You know, your music almost, like, needs to be in, you know, Philadelphia with, you know, Phil Spector or something, because, you know, you, like, you create these, like, instant productions, you know? Like, I mean, that's what you were doing at, at Louisiana. Yeah. Like, a production, like, instant... You know, somebody was telling me that... I, I got a friend, he told me that Bob Crew, you know, you know that guy, right? Yeah. He's gone now, but... He told me that, like, it was a party trip. Bob Crew used to go to parties, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it was out here. And he would, like, they go, "Come on, do your thing," you know. And he go, "Okay." Because like, I want all the people over here to like, you know, clap on two and four, and I want you people to stop on one, and you know, double stop on two, and then I want the people, you know, over there by the bar. I want you guys to like every time I like raise my hand, I want you to go, you know, doobie doobie doobie, or you know, whatever it was. And he would create this whole, he would produce the party to make just this incredible hit record sounding thing, you know. And I, I heard a, a similar story about Dion when he wrote Run Around Sue. Mm-hmm. I think it's Run Around Sue. And what happened was they went to a party, and he went to a party in Brooklyn, and he got like, whoa, oh, 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 oh. He got everybody doing that and clapping hands, yeah. and they just had to, he came into this party, and they, everybody was partying, all his friends, and they just had this big party trick where they just got the whole party. And they said, like, the record was never close. It's like what had happened that night at the party, you know what I mean? And, and, uh, you know, that's sort of like a, a thing, like, you can do that with audiences, and I've been doing it lately with a song I got. You know, I'm more into it than I've ever been, really, that kind of producing the room to make it sound like a rock record. Because, you know, I like that more than I like rock records. I like the sound of, um, you know, that kind of percussive sound of people getting involved, you know. It's like church, really. That's what they're yeah, doing. Yeah, it is exactly like church. It's what they're doing in church bands. I've been playing at the John Coltrane Church in San Francisco. It's mm-hmm. uh, I've been playing there now for a little while because I've been on the road. I hope I could still play there when I finally get off the road. But um, yeah, it's been great. Yeah, I play like two or three hours every Sunday with these people and we do like Love Supreme. I'm the piano player, you know. Yeah, I sort of grew up in that position a bit because, you know, I'm not really studied at that. Do you know covers? Did you grow up learning lots of covers and throughout your songwriting life have you played covers yeah I grew up playing covers and so you still know them you still yeah, know I a still, lot of songs oh yeah I mean when I was a kid like to play a gig you had to know how to play Midnight Hour Knock on Wood Mustang Sally you had to know um, some Beatles you know you can't do that maybe or you, Gloria you had to play Gloria uh, we did all those songs and then we did stuff like uh 
There used to be a song called Do the Hump that we used to always do that you had to do in Buffalo. It was a popular song by a local band called the Invictus. And so girls would come up and go, play the hump. <laughs> and they would have it, like, you know, and then, and then things like that. And so, like, we would do all covers, you know. Uh, and later on, you know, I kind of left that world as Led Zeppelin was coming in. And so the last cover, I was in a band and we did some, uh, you know, kind of stuff like that. I remember being in one band, we did a Laurel, we had Laurel Nero covers. But the last band I had, we did... Uh, you know, the set was like Money, Dizzy Miss Lizzie, Rumble. We used to play some stuff by the band, you know. And I was a piano player in that band. Everybody would leave the stage and I'd play Rumble. And we played all high school dances. That band was called Pig Nation. And we played uh, all covers and maybe one or two original songs yeah. that I wrote. And then, um, and then as a folk singer, I played covers too. And so, you know, we had this one group that did, we used to do Leonard Cohen and we did Incredible String Band. We we had this one group, and then we did a very cellular song by Incredible String Band, which is like a 15-minute, like, you know, psychedelic extravaganza. You know, we'd play Morning Dew and, you know, I mean, a million things, you know? Right. Covers, yeah. you know, and then we would play, uh, you know, the Plimsolls played tons of covers. But before that, you know, I came from that background, too, of playing in bars here in L.A., so the Plimsolls got together out in El Monte at a place called... Doug Schogemeyer's The Place. Mm -hmm. And then it was just called The Place. And um, there was only two places to go in El Monte at that time. One was the Bowling Alley Bar, and the other one was The Place. And if you got 80, the, the people at The Place were all people that had been 86 from the Bowling Alley. <laughs> and so it was really a nuts place. But we would do five sets a night, three, four nights a week. That's crazy. $100 a man, all you could drink. And this, that's how the Plimsolls got together. And the songs, we, we were backing up this uh, blind guitar player named Doc, Doc Holliday. And um, Doc would play, he was a Ricky Nelson specialist. But he would also play Waylon and, you know, Waylon Jennings songs. And he did a lot of Elvis too. And then I would sing and I would do, I was doing like Polk Salad Annie and, you know, we did some Hank Williams, you know, all this kind of stuff. And you learn a lot about, Wife for playing by playing for dancers and playing at dances and playing covers, and then after that, you know blues covers, all kinds of covers. And so I've always played um, other people's music. At one point, I could play the whole first Bob Dylan album in order. You know, I could come into a folk club and play the, like just play the whole record if I wanted to. You know, and when I played on the street, I did mostly covers when I first got to uh, San Francisco. You know, and I I had a weird combination of like blues and sort of like brill building stuff. So I was doing like. I knew a lot of blues songs, Charlie Hooker, you know, Stranger in Town, and uh, but then I was also doing like Heartbreak Hotel, mm -hmm. and I did Spanish Harlem, Save the Last Dance for Me, and it was crazy, and I had these groups and we'd play on the street, there's a movie of it, you know, and then I really got into reggae, I got into Bob Marley, but we saw, I saw him play in 74, I think it was, but I got in, I, was, I thought I was going to be a reggae singer in 73, I was only 18. And uh, I learned the heart of they come and all that kind of music, well, not all that kind of music, but that song and other songs by him. I always knew a lot of Bob Dylan songs. I once opened for Jimmy Cliff at the Roxy when I was eighteen. Did you? Yeah. Did you open? Yeah, I was. I was literally wow. at the top of the stairs there with all of them, saying, "You got to come to Jamaica." <laughs> it was a crazy pairing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he's great. I tried to get into the Fillmore to see him on this last tour, and I couldn't get in. It was sold out by the time we got there. Love Jimmy Cliff. Man. Yeah, that was... That movie was so great. I saw that movie over and over again, you know. And uh, what a great movie. What a great person, you know, vibe he had. 
I saw the very first Marley gig on the West Coast. Like I think it was his second gig in America. He played Boston, and then they flew to San Francisco. And I was on the street, and these guys came running out, and they go, "Peter, you got to come out." You, I had these, this other guy, Danny, that I played with, Peter and Danny, and we used to go up and play, uh, you know, on the street all the time. And these guys came down and knew that I was into reggae. You got to come up there and see these guys at the Matrix. And so they were we ran a lot. They were they were coming to California a lot in the late. 70s, I think. Yeah, this was like 73 or 4. It was like oh, it was earlier. This was their first gig in, uh -huh. in, uh, in California. So we went in there, and it was like at the Matrix Ballroom, which was not turned into the Keystone. You ever played the Keystone? Mm -mm. And uh, we used to play there all the time. They used to call it the Stone. But but before that, it was the Matrix. And it's right across from the Mabuai Gardens. But that wasn't there yet. There's Mar places yeah. I played that I can't remember playing. Literally, like when I was signed to Electra Records when I was 18, I'll go back to places and realize, oh, I've played here, but I was, you know, and the record company's doing everything and you know I know, know it's nothing. like having somebody else driving the car and like yeah. the, the passenger seat, you're not really sure where you are half the time. Yeah, exactly. So I say I haven't played those places. I'm not entirely sure, but probably not. I, I, I didn't even know what cities I was in sometimes. I remember this one time I was uh, out there. I'm, I'm in Missouri. I'm like, I'm glad I finally made it to Missouri to St. Louis. And they're like, you've played here twice before, you know. <laughs> but uh, I have a I have a question for you. Um, I didn't mean to stop your thought though. If you were finishing something. Go ahead. Yeah, my question is, you know, you were discussing working a room with a crowd. Do you feel like rec record making? It's almost a distraction to that, because I'm starting to feel like there's the record, but then you take the song and you play it live, and if you're not playing with a band, and your record has a band and an arrangement on it, you, you really have to revision the entire presentation of that song to play it live solo. And does it make sense to make the record, uh, Highway 62 on your record, for example, those records are more geared for the way you present them live. Well, that's the thing. I got hip to that after I did that record with T-Bone, that some of the ways that he produced some of the songs was great, but was impossible to approach solo. And it created a lot of problems. And so when I got to that next record that I produced myself with Stephen Souls, my idea was that the guitar and my performance had to be at the center of the record. And that's the same kind of record I made on Highway 62. It's sort of like center is my guitar performance and my singing performance. And that way, you, without too much, you can make things on there that sound great and all kinds of things. But, you know, just something you have to feel like so that it doesn't, you know, so you don't get carried away. So you can't pr produce it again. But it really is different. And great records are really different from great gigs. And um, records are funny when you're on the kind of, budgets that a lot of us get on because you do them quickly a lot of times you're doing them right after you've got the songs going but you don't really have the time you know to roll a lot of tape and um, play them over and over again in the studio you know the stones would do you know 15 you know they do 50 takes or 100 takes or 200 takes or whatever they would do if uh the groove and stuff until they finally got it, and they didn't care if it took all week or they, you know, they spent a lot, a lot of time making their great records. The 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 ones in that middle period, I think the early records were done rather quickly, but the 
but the, when they got to that period where they were doing like uh, sticky fingers and all that kind of thing, they they spent a lot of time getting tracks. But we're not spending that that much time getting tracks, and so you can't really work it in, you know. And so Stephen Souls from the Alpha Band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from the Rolling Thunder Review we, and the Alpha Band. Yeah, we actually he lived at my house up in Laurel Canyon. I think I was like. 14 or 13. My mom went on tour and Stephen Souls was living in the house in the summer. So, yeah, Why was when he I was doing teen, that? My mother was on tour and wanted people in the house. I know T-Bone was in, they were in a band. Oh, that was Alpha Band days. Yeah, that was Alpha Band days. Yeah, he's a good person. I love Steve. He's one of my old friends. That's, it's good to work with people that you've known a long time and, and know you. He managed me for a while in the 80s. Yeah. And then... You know, Bob Newworth told me there's two kinds of managers, the ones that love you and the ones that know what they're doing. <laughs> it and can't you, be both? You need to have one that's both. Yeah. Like so that's the, very rare. Like Peter Asher to James Taylor. Yeah. It's rare. Many things are rare. Yeah. Most everything that's worthwhile is rare. It's rare. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I guess life's kind of rare when you look at the whole universe. So... So that's the deal. Yeah, you know, you got to figure out a way to make records and you got to figure out a way to play live so it works and figure out a way to get people to come in and figure out, you know, you just got to like find your way, you know, prayer helps, candles, you know, voodoo candles, uh, you know, uh, uh, praying, getting on your knees, going to church, uh, reading books, uh, uh, you know, taking notes, carrying around, uh, you know, you know, piece of lucky stones and, you know, found you know only working on music that you know that's key the only working on music part the saying no to all the the distractions that fill up life yeah but you can't you know you you get to these things where you just want to like you know go watch movies or read shakespeare or you know do something you know a lot of different things happen or you just want to have some friends or have some fun so it all feeds back into music but you always got to keep your eyes and ears open and I think if you uh, keep, you know, write down things that occur to you, that's a good idea. And try to find new ways of doing things. I always try to find a new way to write songs. And I seem to always come up with a different kind of way of doing it, like a different process, kind of. I mean, certain things are always the same, and then the songs seem like they don't sound as different as the process is sometimes. Sometimes the process that I write with is really different. And I always try to get something, because I get bored with the old way of doing things. Mm -hmm. And so... uh, you know, it could be the lyrics first and you're typing them and you just hear the melody in your head. Or maybe, you, you know, you just... And I remember in the Plimsolls, I used to just set up a boombox in a hotel room and just get a guitar and turn on tape and then just start rocking and hoping something would happen, you know? I don't know. Things like that or, or you know, instant songs. Just write, like, write... Give yourselves five minutes, write a song, you know? Uh, do it every day or, like, you know, all kinds of things. So that was part one of this conversation with Peter that took place last year. And there's more to it. But I also called Peter. I wanted to see where he was at with quarantine and how life had changed for him. I wanted to include all of that. And next episode will be the remainder of this interview, plus our talk. He was actually sitting in his car at Land's End up in San Francisco. Uh, talking about life now. Hi, this is Peter Case, and you're listening to Song Chronicles with Louise Goffin.
tune in next week for part two. And thanks for listening.